Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him that all told them that all they had done and taught. And they said to him, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw the great, a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said to him, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered him, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do, we, do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to, to heaven and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. In 1965, George Stephen released the epic motion picture titled The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it was a movie about the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ from conception all the way to his ascension into heaven. And when I say epic, I mean it was epic because it was like four hours and 20 minutes long. Right? And in, in, in this movie, many of the famous details about Jesus' life and ministry were portrayed on the big screen. And, and I believe that the movie was aptly named because the story of Jesus Christ is in fact the greatest story that has ever been told. Right? It is, it is the story of the entire Bible. It is all, it is all about Jesus from the very beginning to the end. The Bible opens up with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John chapter 1, he gives us some insight and some more details about what happened in the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then notice what it says in, in verse 3. It says, all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is not just some man. He is the creator of all things, and in him is life itself. And then in Genesis chapter 3, after man had fallen into sin, fallen from grace... We see a promise of the coming Jesus Christ. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Almost from the very beginning, we see the promise of Jesus Christ coming into the world. We see the promise of his suffering at the hands of our enemy as he bruises his heel. But ultimately, the promise of Jesus defeating our enemy as he crushes the head of Satan himself, defeating sin and death. And the reality is all the Old Testament is the unfolding story of Jesus Christ. It, it, it anticipates Jesus Christ. It points forward towards the Messiah. And all of the prominent leaders in the Bible, like Moses and Joshua and David, were types and shadows of the Christ that was to come. They were pictures, faint images of, of who Jesus was to be. The entire Levitical system itself and the sacrificial system, were, they were both symbols that pointed forward to the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrificial lamb for sin that one day would once and for all make a way for God's people to be saved forever and live in a broken fellowship with, with God. Every proverb, every psalm points forward to Jesus Christ. And, and, and then Jesus actually comes into the world, which is recorded for us in the New Testament. In explicit detail and living color, we read about the events and the stories of Jesus, and we see this narrative take shape where God of the universe condescended to come to earth to be one of us. Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ arrived quietly, born of a virgin. And he grew up as a, as a carpenter's son, living a perfect life, a life that we couldn't live. And he emerges as a nobody from nowhere, from a little backwater town in an unimportant region of the world. And he, he comes preaching the message of hope. He says, the time is now. The kingdom is here Repent of your sins and believe the good news of the gospel. And Jesus goes about the countryside and the towns and all the cities proclaiming this message of hope. And he does all kinds of incredible miracles and he touches the lives of tens of thousands of people. And, and this is received by many with great joy and, and, and with great hope. But it's also received by many with doubt and jealousy and, and anger. And, and those in political power begin to seek to put him to death. And as we know, Jesus was arrested and tried and wrongfully convicted and tortured and executed on a Roman cross. Jesus, the son of the living God, died on a cross and then was buried and three days later and then was resurrected to new life, physically and literally, which is the most attested to historical event in all antiquity. And then he spends the next 40 days on earth with his disciples and then he ascends to heaven where he now sits at this moment, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. This is the greatest story that has ever been told. But it is not just a story. It's a historical reality. God really did come to rescue and save mankind. The God of the universe entered time and space and history to fulfill the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3. And every detail and every event in the Gospels is not just a detail in a great story. They are individual historical realities. Jesus historically was born of a virgin. Jesus historically healed and cast out demons. Jesus historically gave the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus historically died on a Roman cross. And Jesus historically rose from the dead three days later. This is not just the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest event in all of human history. An event that those in the Old Testament looked forward to. And it's an event that we now look back on. Jesus Christ is the central figure 
in all of human history. And his story is the greatest story ever recorded because he is the greatest man who has ever lived. Fully God, fully man, he came into the world to make a way for us to be clean of our sin, to be restored in a relationship with God, and to give us eternal life in his presence. It is, in fact, the greatest story ever told. Now, in this story, there are many individual events and many individual stories that communicate to us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And, and, and if I were to ask some of you what some of these stories were, what stands out to you, there would be many that, that you could choose from. There's so many stories that really speak to us and inspire us and communicate to us who Jesus really is. Like the story of Lazarus, when he raises him from the dead, how Jesus cries and he weeps with compassion for his friends. What a defining story about Jesus. Or when he said to the scribes and Pharisees before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up rocks and stones to kill him because they knew exactly what he was saying, that he said that I'm God in the flesh. Right? Or perhaps the story of Jesus drawing in the sand as the Pharisees bring forward the woman caught in adultery and said, you who have sin, have no sin, cast the first stone. Or how about the story where he's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Right? There are many stories in the narrative of Jesus Christ's life that stand out, that really define for us who Jesus is, that give us a picture of what he's come to do. And, and, and there are many stories that touch our hearts and shape our understanding of Christ, but there is one story I believe that really communicates the hearts of who Jesus is. Right? And, 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 what, and, and who we are called to be as ambassadors for him. And it's the text that we see before us today. Jesus feeding the 5,000 is a defining moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's such an important miracle that it's the only miracle except the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them is told from their own different perspective, but they have remarkable similarity in their detail. And what this tells us, this act right here by Jesus is especially defining of his, his ministry. And what we see in this story is a wonderful picture of who Christ is and what he came to do, but it's also, I want you to hear me, it's an example for us to follow. Because that's why we're here in this series on the first place. We're walking through the book of Mark, learning what it means to follow Christ as his disciples. You see, it's not enough for us just to believe some facts about Jesus, right? We're called to follow him, to pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and get busy following him. We are called to progressively grow and become more and more like him, to be conformed in his image, as Paul tells us to be a representative of Christ here on earth. And, and this story has so much to teach us about Jesus and how we're to be like him. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter six and let's walk through this together. Verse 30, the, it, it begins, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all about all that they had done and taught. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus had sent out his 12 apostles on their first missions trip. He called them, he trained them, he equipped them, and then he sent them out, right, to do exactly what he had been doing, which is to preach the gospel and to heal people and cast out demons. And they obeyed and they went. And so now they're coming back joyfully reporting to Jesus what had happened. 
right? And if you remember, Mark said that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. These men obviously had success on their mission, and they were all excited to come back and report to Jesus, you know, all about it. And then he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boats to a desolate place by themselves. And if you remember, right from the very beginning, Jesus' ministry of, of how the crowds began to overwhelm him and he, as he taught them and he, he healed them. And the crowds and their needs got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And these men now were, were in the thick of things with Jesus because they themselves now were continuing on this ministry. They were, they were, they were preaching and they were healing. And, and just like Jesus, they were very busy in their ministry and they had very little time at all to rest and barely even had any time to eat. In fact, if you remember... Uh, Earlier on in the story, the reason why Jesus' family came to uh, Capernaum, they came there to try to take him home because they thought he was crazy because he'd been so busy with the crowds that, that he was so busy ministering to people that he hardly had enough time to eat. And now his, his apostles are experiencing the same thing. You know, they were preaching the good news and ministering to people, and likewise, they were being overrun with people, right? Because there was just so much to do. Just so you know, in, in ministry, there's always more to do than can be done. But notice Jesus invites them to come away with him and to get away from the crowds and to rest because that is what they needed. They needed to rest. An important part of ministry, an important part of life itself in general, is our need for rest. And this is something that I believe that, that we oftentimes overlook, especially us as Americans. The fact that we all need to rest at some point. In fact, that's part of how God designed us. That's why the Old Testament law required people to, to rest. That's why there was a Sabbath in the first place. People need to rest, even from ministry. Like, like Johnny, a couple weeks ago, had an opportunity to come here right, during second service and sit out there and worship from there and rest and not have to be up here you know, ministering. He had an opportunity to rest. Same with us in August. Uh, our family is going to spend some time with my oldest son, in Sher uh, Sherman, in Washington. Uh, and while I'm there, we're going to go to church there. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to get an opportunity to rest. Resting is an important part of life. And, and I mention this because many of us get so overcommitted and so busy that we don't take the time to slow down and to recover. We just run around from one activity to the next. We're thinking, you know, this is normal for us to live this way. We go from one thing on our to-do list to the next. We go from practice to work to volunteer events to cleaning the house to cooking dinner to working on the bills. And then we crash into the pillow, you know, just to sleep just enough to get up and start it all over again. The cycle begins again and continues over and over again. We struggle to stop and slow down and get rest. And I want you to know, like, I understand this personally. I purposefully, I purposefully take days off. I have to, because if I don't, I'll just keep working all the time. That's my wife, right? And, and even when I'm at home and my day's off, my wife's always reminding me, unplug, settle down, just rest, take it easy, because I'm like pacing like a caged animal, right? It's in my nature. I have to learn to rest. 
But we all need to understand God intended the rhythm for our life to be that way. It is absolutely to work hard, but then also to rest. There's a balance that we're all, every single one of us are called to live in. We are absolutely called to work. Okay? Everyone is called to work and work hard. We are called to be occupied with productive activities in our lives. That is the, the nature of things. It's been like that since the, since the beginning in the garden. I want you to know that work was created before the fall. We are all called to be occupied with productive activities but, and, and because laziness is absolutely a sin. So understand, we're all called to work. But on the other hand, we are, are not to be so consumed with activity that we fail to rest. That we fail to unplug and clear our heads and our minds. It is actually a sin to not rest. That's why there's a such thing as a Sabbath. That's why they actually, the nation of Israel would cast people out of their fellowship. Because it is God's design in our lives for us to, to rest at some point. We are called to live in this balance of work and rest. And, and, and notice that Jesus is calling them to rest and, and spend some time with him. By the way, which is the best kind of rest that you can have? Is when you spend quiet time in the presence of Christ, praying and reading his word and worshiping and meditating on his truth and allowing his truth to renew your mind. That's the best kind of rest is to rest in the Lord. And so after a productive, busy missions trip, Jesus invites his apostles to come away with him to a quiet place and rest. But, but I want you to notice what happens. It says, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Jesus and his apostles attempted to get away in their boat and go to a solitary place to be by themselves and rest, right? But the crowd saw them, right? They recognized the sail in the boat, and so they hurriedly made their way around on foot the lake ahead of them. That's the impact of Jesus' ministry. People were desperate for healing. They were hungry for hope, right? And they know Jesus can, can help them. And so they make their way around the lake, and they, and they get there just before Jesus and his apostles. And, and it says, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, before we read on, I want you to just to stop for just a second and think about this. It has been an exhausting several days, right? And you are overworked and you're tired and you're now looking forward to getting some much needed rest. Maybe you're about to take some time off or maybe you're about ready to go away for the weekend or maybe you're just about ready to crash into the bed for like two days. And right as you get there, Right as your anticipation is, I'm going to spend some time by myself, or I'm just going to get some rest, then, then someone in, a, in, in, a, in desperate need pops up. Someone else who needs help, whether it's counsel or a shoulder to cry on, or needs help with something else, shows up uninvited. How do you personally react to that? Is it with frustration? Is it with deep, dreadful sigh? <sighs> Is it, I just don't have time for this. Is it with anger? One of the things that I, I did not think about before I became a pastor was the fact that there are going to be times when your phone is going to ring when it's just not convenient for it to ring. Sometimes the phone rings after a long day. Sometimes it rings in the middle of the night. Sometimes the phone even rings on my day off. And there have been times that I've been dead asleep and my phone is ringing and someone's needed help. But God has been gracious enough to me to give me patience when things like this happen. Because I'm telling you, my initial reaction isn't always to be like, like Jesus. 
because I want you to notice how he reacts to this crowd showing up. It says, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. After all that they have done, and after they've purposely tried to get away from the crowd and rest and reconnect with the apostles, right? People are showing up uninvited and they interrupt their plans. And he wasn't mad. He wasn't irritated. He wasn't put off, but rather he had compassion on them. Again, think about that for a moment and visualize your, your own reaction. You've had plans of your own to get away. You have plans to spend the weekend in bed. You have plans to unplug and shut off the world and disconnect. And then someone in need shows up at the last minute. And all of your plans begin to change. And you, and you can see there's no end in sight to that. What would your reaction be to that? I mean, really, what would your reaction be? I mean, write that down. I mean, that's, that'll give you a little space for that. I mean, in your own mind, how would you react to that? Would it be compassion or something else? This is a really good test for us to see where our hearts are. But the truth is, as important as that is for us, and it is for us to rest, sometimes we, we need, the needs of others are more important and more urgent than our own plans, than our need to unplug and rest. So how would we then react to that? Now, I want you to understand, as important as that is, that's not even the main point I want to draw your attention to. The main point I want to draw your attention to is the word compassion itself. This word compassion is translated from the Greek word here that you see up there. It's pronounced splagnitsomai. I had to practice it like 10 times to get that. So. Splagnitsomai. And this word does mean compassion and it means pity or to be emotionally moved. But the root of the idea behind this word has to do with your guts your insides. And so the idea that's being communicated in this word is that it's a feeling so strong that you feel it deep inside of you, like the pit of your stomach, right? It's down in your guts. It, it's down deep in you. And so this is not just simply an emotion that he felt. This is an incredibly strong emotion that, that physically you feel deep inside. It's an emotion that moves you, right? right? And I think that we've all experienced that. I think we know what that's like to feel that way when, you know, when we get the bad news about somebody that we love and that affects them. We, we feel that. And we feel that physical force of that emotion. Or when someone we care about is suffering, we experience deep compassion. Right? It's, it's, it's almost painful. I mean, Kim and I and McKaylee recently have been on this kick of watching old Western movies, particularly John Wayne movies, because there's just so much stuff out there you just can't watch with your kids. So, so we're watching John Wayne movies and we're watching Big Jake, and everything's fine. Like we, you know, they're they're laughing at the right places, and 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 and, and nobody's really even emotional. Like when even when good guys get killed, everybody's like fine with that. But then McKaylee and Kim at the same time, like when when they kill John Wayne's dog, they're like, oh, I hate this movie. <laughs> Right? Because, because that made them feel something internally here, right? And we know what that's like. We all have experienced that, that feeling deep inside of us. Well, in this text, it's what we see about Jesus, right? He sees this crowd, this, you know, and he says that they're, it says it as sheep without a shepherd. Or in other words, they're lost and they're wandering. 
These people are hurting. These people are are looking for hope. They are desperate. And and, and the shepherds that were supposed to be taking care of them, the scribes and the Pharisees, have been failing them. Rather than helping them and giving them hope, rather than pointing them and leading them to God, they were loading them down with all these man-made rules and regulations. And they just keep reminding these people over and over again of their obligations to the law and how they're failing and falling short. These religious leaders were not guiding them to the truth and hope that they desperately needed. Instead, they were simply looking down their self-righteous noses at them. They looked at these people's riffraff or throwaways, forgetting that these are the people they were called to serve. These shepherds were called to serve and lead these people, and they were failing them. And these people were lost and desperate in need of a, of, a, of a shepherd. And Jesus sees their brokenness, and he sees their desperation, and he sees their hopelessness, and he feels deep inside of him, in his very real physical body, this emotion that begins to well up inside of him, this overwhelming pity and compassion for them it's an emotion so strong he doesn't even care anymore that they are there to rest and that he's trying to get away and spend some time with the apostles he doesn't care that they've been working to the point of exhaustion and have been barely eating it's an emotion so strong that he immediately changes gears and begins to minister to these people Jesus had compassion for them brothers and sisters this should stop you in your tracks this, is, this should blow your mind. This should take your breath away. This event should cause you to stare long and hard and deeply at Jesus right here because this part of the story reveals so much about God and about you. These people are all broken sinners. All of them desperate. All of them selfish. In fact, they're all there because they, they want something. But they are all just like us, hopeless on our own, and they know something is wrong. They know that they're broken. They know they can't fix it on their own, that they need help. And so they come desperate, desperately seeking Jesus. They come on foot, walking and running for miles over rocks and stones and boulders with no food and no supplies and no plans except to just get near Jesus because in Him they find hope. Sinner, that is the picture of of how you need to be. Leave it all behind and go get Jesus. Go to Him. Run to Him. Forget everything else. Seek Him with all of your heart. And when you get to Him, come to Him and hold on to Him. Because He will not turn you away. He will not despise you. He will not say that you're not good enough. He will not say to you that you're not worthy enough. He will not say to you, you were too broken for me. He will have compassion on you, dear sinner. He will minister to you. Take hold of him because he loves you. And look at this man. Look deeply in his eyes and see the heartfelt compassion. And this is not just some man This is the God of the universe. In a moment, he's going to create enough food out of a few pieces of flatbread and two small fish to feed 5,000 men, which is actually 15,000 people because all they did was count the men. He's going to create enough food, think about this, to, to feed this little town six times over. He's going to supernaturally create enough food to feed 15,000 people. Don't you dare tell me that he's just some rabbi. 
Don't you dare tell me that he is just some created being, that he's just some moral teacher. This is God in the flesh, the God of the universe in the human body creating food out of nothing. A miracle that makes all the other miracles he's done so far pale by comparison. And it's that Jesus, God, fully God and fully man, that Jesus had compassion on these people. Why? I mean, the truth is, Every single one of them was a rebel against God. Every single one of them loves their sin. Every single one of them, given a choice, without a changed heart, will choose their sin over God every time, just like you will. They will suppress the truth and unrighteousness, just like every other human being is prone to do by their nature. So why does Jesus feel this way about them? Why does he have such strong emotion toward them? Because he loves them. He loves them. He loves them so much that he's going to heal many of them. In fact, Matthew and Luke both make a point to tell us that he healed many of them of their sicknesses. He loved them enough to meet their physical needs for healing. And he loved them enough to proclaim to them the truth of the gospel. Mark says that he began to teach them many things. Luke says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus loved these people enough to preach to them the truth. By the way, proclaiming the truth is loving. Denying the truth is hateful. That's why Jesus did what he did. He loved them. And he loved them enough that he would soon allow himself to be tortured and killed for them. That's what he came to do. When, he, when, he, when we talk about the love of God... Yes, we know that God is mysterious and He's bigger than our imaginations and He's beyond our full understanding of Him. But, when, when, but, but the love that He feels is not too mysterious for us to understand. It's a real emotion. It's a real feeling. It's one that we can all relate to. Because the love that we feel for other people finds its origin in God Himself. He gave you the ability to love and that love that you feel points back to him. Think about someone that you love deeply. Someone that you love so much you can't think about living without them. Someone that you love so much, right, that you would give your life for them. Someone that you love so much that the idea of them being hurt just, just tears you apart. Think about that emotion and hold on to that emotion and understand as strong as that emotion may be, the way Christ feels about you is infinitely greater than that. It is a love that caused Jesus to feel compassion and that he did. It's a love that caused Jesus to cry when, when, when he saw his friends grieving over the death of Lazarus, even though he knew that he was going to raise them from the dead. It's a love that caused Jesus to wash his disciples' feet, even Judas himself. It's a love that caused Jesus to endure the beating and the crown of thorns and the nine-inch nails being driven into his flesh. It's a love that caused him to endure the awful and terrible wrath of Almighty God that you deserve. It is the love that caused him to take on himself your sins and caused the Father to turn his back on him, prompting Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? me. It's because of that love that the sinless, spotless Son of the living God died the death that you deserve. 
See this picture of this man who loves this way. Turn to him, embrace him, repent and believe in him. He loves you more than you could possibly even imagine. And he is all that you will ever need. That Jesus had compassion on them. And he ministered to them. In verse 35 it says, And and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them and and buy themselves something to eat. So again, another long ministry day has has come upon them. And now they're in the middle of nowhere, and there's no food around for the the apostles to eat, much less all of these these people. And so they they tell Jesus to send them off. In fact, the tone here is kind of forceful, right? The tone in the Greek kind of betrays this idea that they're kind of irritated and frustrated at this point. And, and, And really, like, being a human being, who could blame them? I mean, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're hungry. They, they, they were, they'd expected by now that they would be resting and the day just keeps dragging on and on and on. And I, th- I think that we can identify with that. Especially those people who work in VBS. I mean, we love VBS and, 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 and people who work, you know, are wonderful, right? And, and they do it because they love the kids and they want to see kids get saved, right? And they're willing to do whatever needs to be done. But I promise you, if I was to stand up here on Friday evening at 8 o'clock when VBS is supposed to be about to be closed, and I was to announce that we were going to have another week of VBS, the workers would gang up on me and drag me downstairs and probably beat the life out of me. Or at least my wife would, you know. We know what it's like to be tired and exhausted. And, and the, 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 the apostles were just that. They were exhausted. And, and so they were like, Jesus, come on. Send these people away, man, so we can get something to eat. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? Like Jesus, like you feed them. And they're like, okay, Jesus, stop joking. That's impossible, right? Like eight months wages, you know, to buy just enough bread to feed these people. Come on. I mean, not to mention who's going to go and carry it all, Right? Enough food for 15,000 people. It's impossible, right? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they had found out, and they said five and two fish. What you need to realize is what's happening here is he said, you know, this, you know they said, send the people away to eat. And he's like, feed them. And they respond with, hey, man, that's impossible, right? And it is impossible, which is kind of the point. And then he says, you know, take a survey and see what you have on hand. And then according to John, they find a boy who had, you know, five little pieces of bread. I mean, when, when it says loaves of bread, these are like little, like flat eight-inch pieces of bread, kind of like tortillas, all right? And then two small feet fish, and small fish, we're talking about sardines, which, which means this is really impossible. I mean, this is not enough food. You can't even feed five people with this, much less 15,000 people, which is the point. Jesus draws us into a place where we're depending upon him, right? And then he commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of by hundreds and, and by fifties. Now, besides the fact that his disciples are obeying, which is good, but they're probably thinking like, I have no idea what he's doing. I'm just doing what I'm told here, right? Just sit down, right? 
I want you to notice that there, that, that there are several things happening in this moment that we need to pay attention to. There are several details that we need to, to look at that actually draw us back to the Old Testament. I want you to first notice that they're organized in people by 50s and 100s. They're neatly organizing these people into groups. And this is a parallel, on purpose, a parallel point about how the nation of Israel was organized in their camps during the time of them wandering in the desert, a desolate place. And they were organized and camped and moved around in these groups. And, and, and so, so this is a picture of that, right? And, and, and one of the con concerns of the Israels, Israelites at that point was, where are we going to get food from, right? But the book of Exodus chapter 16 tells us that God supernaturally provided them the food. Manna from heaven. God himself provided the food that just came out of the sky. Every single day, what they needed was provided for them. This is what... It, what, is, what this is going to happen now in Jesus' presence. God is supernaturally going to feed his, his people. And again, it's a reminder of that. And, and, and here they are out in the wilderness, a desolate place, like, like the Israelites, broken up in these organized groups, waiting for God to provide. And Jesus, just like Moses, is now interceding for his people. This is the picture that we see here. It's a picture of the Exodus is what it is. All right. Now, second thing that I want you to notice is the reference to sheep and a shepherd. And these people being in great need, and these people being instructed to sit down and rest on the green grass. And with that picture in mind, let me remind you of the words of David who said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, shall not be of need. He makes me lie down, he makes me rest in green pastures. This is a picture of this. This is on purpose. This is near the Passover when, when, when Israel is green. It says, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is a moment here. It's a beautiful picture of the good shepherd taking care of his sheep. This is a picture of Jesus faithfully taking care of his people. Because notice what it says. And taking the loaves of bread and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to them to give them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied the lord is my shepherd i shall not want i shall not be in need i shall have everything i need i shall be satisfied is another way to say that Jesus took two pieces, I mean, a few pieces of bread and a couple of small fish, and he superly, supernaturally met the needs of 15,000 people, most of whom were not believers at that point. How much more will he provide for you if you just trust in him? You who belong to him, you who are part of his family. And then notice it says, and he took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Not only did he feed all these people, but there was an abundance left over. 12 baskets full. They started with five tortillas and two sardines. And he feeds 15,000 people. And if there's any doubt that this was a miracle, then there's 12 baskets full left over. And what this helps us to see is that not only is Jesus God in the flesh, but that Jesus as God is more than enough for us. He's not just enough. 
He's more than enough. He's abundantly more than enough. That's why when Paul says, take the thorn away from me, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. He is the bread of life itself. And Jesus said, whoever eats of him will never be hungry again. Jesus is more than enough, not just to meet your physical needs, but also your greatest need, which is forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus is more than enough for you. And like I said before, we look at this text like this, there's a whole lot more we can talk about here. There's so many more details. In fact, some of you probably said, hey, you could have talked about this and this and this. I could, but I'm running out of time. I already go long as it is. But I want to share with you before we wrap up three truths that we need to absolutely take away from this text. Number one, Jesus is the answer to your greatest need. Jesus is always the answer. Your greatest need is, is the fact that you're a sinner who is under the wrath of God with no way to fix it on your own. And you are hopeless in your own state, just like these people. But Jesus made a way for you to be set free. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is the answer to your greatest need. And he always will be. And he's the greatest, and he's the answer to, to our community's greatest need. He's the answer to our family's greatest needs. Number two, <clears throat> Jesus is more than you will ever need. Not only the answer, but he's more than you need. Life may be hard. And sometimes things are going to go wrong. And you're going to face storms and you're going to wonder, am I even going to make it through this? And, and you might even wonder, where is even God at in this whole process anyway? But no matter what comes your way, if you have Christ, you have more than enough to endure. Because He is your rock. He is your high tower. He is your salvation. He is your treasure. He is your hope. And if you believe in Him, you have more than enough. More than you will ever need. Now and for all eternity. Jesus is more than what that we, will, we ever need. And then third, Jesus, his love is a radical, world-changing, soul-rescuing, sacrificial, amazing kind of love. Whatever love that you might feel for another person that you love the most, that is but a shadow of the kind of love that Jesus feels for his people. And it's because of that love, Jesus cares about you and if you walk out of here and you don't remember anything else I said, remember that Jesus loves you. He has compassion for you. He cares about your physical life. He cares about what, how you feel. He cares about your emotional life. But he especially cares about your spiritual life. Where do you stand before God? He loves you so much that he literally died for you. If there's a truth that you cannot let get out of your mind, it's that one there. He died for you. That's how much he loved you. What more do you need to know? Which then leads us to how do we apply this? The first one I think is obvious. Jesus loves you so much that he's calling you to come to him and put your faith in him. If you come to him, he will not despise you. If you come to him, he will not turn you away. And you can come to him right now, today. If you've not come to him, then come to him now. Seek Him with all your heart and all your might and follow Him and pursue Him and grab a hold on Him and don't ever let Him go. Sinner, today is the day of salvation. You can be rescued in this moment, but grab a hold of Jesus and He will heal you. And the way that you do that is to do what Jesus said, to repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin 
And in that process of turning, turn towards God in faith. Turn to Jesus and believe the gospel and trust in Him alone. And you can be saved today, right now. Secondly, brothers and sisters, those of us who are believers, let us take Christ's example to heart here. And let us be compassionate toward others. The world is full of prickly, hard-to-love people. The world is full of people that get under our skin and they want to hurt us and spite us. But what we need to remember is every single person that you encounter, every person that crosses your path, that person is created in the image of the living God. And just like these people, they are sheep without a shepherd. And those lost and broken people, no matter how obnoxious they are and how hard they are to love, they are in need of real hope. And you can be an instrument of hope in the hand of the living God to feed their souls. And even though you may be tired, and even though you may be weary of, of all the activity, and maybe the timing is not so good, let us be like Christ and be moved to compassion for those who are lost. And then finally, let us let that compassion drive us to meet people's needs, both physically and spiritually. Let that compassion push us out of our comfort zones and out onto the streets so that we are willingly going out to meet people where they are and sharing the hope of the gospel of our glorious Lord and Savior who died for us because it is the greatest story that has ever been told. And we're called, every one of us, to be a part of it. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.